Hello, hello. Welcome to the Embodying Change podcast. This episode is dedicated to all those humanitarians out there who are at a time of transition. And what I mean by that, uh, when I'm saying that, I'm thinking of the many, many, many people I know working in humanitarian sector who have recently or will soon be let go from their jobs. Uh, Many organizations are having to cut posts. Uh, And also I'm thinking of the many people who have told me they want to change jobs, but they feel stuck or they feel scared uh, about changing uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, So today I'm really happy to bring to you a conversation I had with Nasrat Ismail. She and I have both been through many transitions since we met each other over 10 years ago. Uh, This conversation is going to give you some perspective and some hope. And uh, I wanted you to know that Nasrat is my friend. Uh, She inspires me. She gives me advice on what nail polish color I should choose, but also she helps me process some really crazy stuff that's going on in our world. And it's so nice to have people like Nasra um, to connect to because it helps you feel less alone and feel better uh, and feel a bit of direction about where we could take agency in going forward. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So I'd like to welcome to the Embodying Change podcast again, Nasra Ismail. How are you, Nasra? Hi, Melissa. I'm doing great. I'm so thrilled to be with you again. It's been I'm, a while. I'm so happy you're here. You know what? Um, a lot of people don't realize, but you were one of the first people we interviewed for this podcast when it came out in 2020. Isn't that amazing? It was awesome. I remember it. I remember it was in like in the middle of your apartment. I was making a visit to Geneva. I think it was like three months prior to the pandemic. I remember. Yeah, I had this really funny little recording device that my husband bought me. And we put it on my kitchen table, which was also a dining room table. And you came and we recorded and it was so fun. It was. It's such a great memory for me. It was because oh. we got to catch up after a while. Um, I was... Uh, I was just finishing a really awesome job um, that took me to be based in Mogadishu. So, mm-hmm. so many things that I remember we talked about just felt like, oh, I'm so glad to have an opportunity just to have someone else converse with me. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that sad? No, it's actually <laughs> quite relatable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 2019, by the way. Yeah, it yeah. was a long time ago. And now... I'm curious. I'm going to ask everyone now, um, because the title of this podcast is Embodying Change. I'd love to know what that means to you. What does embodying change mean to you? Mm, That's such a profound uh, question. I think what it brings out of me uh, is, at least for now, a real deep appreciation of struggle, um, uh, a very humane way of experiencing this world, which is, if anything, all we get is change. Um, but you know what's so fascinating about this question, Melissa, is I think we're all 
um, obsessed with change, different aspects of change, personal, professional, political, what have you. But when, when you say embodying change, um, I, I feel like I have to be quite present and personal and deeply conscious. So, so that part makes me feel like, okay, in 2024, I've done a lot of work on myself up until now. And so I can absolutely feel change and I can be aware of change as it shows up in my body and in my spirit. And then I, um, as usual, then I can speak about big change, change at a sector level, change at a societal level, change in terms of ideas, but embodying change puts me first in a place of embodying my experiences in, in my body and in my spirit. And so it, it's, I'm very happy to be present with you. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. Great I, title. I, I'm a, I have to give credit where credit is due to Marianne Clements. Um, yeah. Embodying change was my, um, Marianne Clements was my partner when we started out with the Working Well Report. And uh, yes. she talks a lot about it. And it makes a lot of sense to me as I start to observe more and more of what's happening uh, in my world is humanitarian. Mm-hmm. Um, when we try to make a profession or a career out of humanitarian work, but we're not humanitarian to our people or ourselves, mm-hmm. it puts us at risk of burnout because there's this cognitive dissonance. Like we're promoting something in the world, but we're not, some people say walking the talk or practicing yeah. what you preach or embodying that change. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very curious how that's showing up for people who are advocating for certain changes when they try to apply it in their own daily life, how that yeah. plays out for them. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I, I think if it weren't for your work, I mean, just personally, I'm not saying this for the podcast, but if it weren't for your work around well-being and burnout within our humanitarian sector, I think um, I would not have um, been a little prepared for my own case of burnout, which happened at the top of 2020. Mm. And so in some ways, like what um, you and your colleagues have covered and the humanity that you brought to the situation and then the leadership focus that you said is required, um, I don't remember uh, that being such a big topic prior to mm. 2019 for me. Mm. And I think the pandemic only accelerated that, only brought it to the level that perhaps it was always at that we just didn't see it, but it brought it to the surface. And so thank you for that. Um, mm. My burnout um, experience after Somalia mm. changed everything about me. And today, you know, I can say for the better. Uh, and I can, you know, try to hold space like you did for me and for others to say, here's what this thing looks like. Here's what this thing sounds like. Here's what it feels like. And if you don't know it, um, it happens to people who are doing well and who are doing good, but have lost bounds. Wow. That means so much here from you. Thank you. Yeah. Could you say more about that? We weren't planning to talk about this and you don't have to, Mm. if you don't want to, I don't want to do that but I'm curious for those who are listening who are really resonating with what you're saying um and be like wow what 
um, what did she learn from that experience that I could learn now instead of going through it myself? Is there anything you learned from that that you would be open to to sharing with people who might be struggling right now? Yeah, I mean, just for those who are going through it and, you know, at whatever stage, um, you're not alone. Uh, in fact, uh, whether you're humanitarian or not, it's just such a, a human uh, experience to go to and either your personal systems, your professional systems, uh, some of the deep biological systems that we have are out of balance. Mm -hmm. For me, in the humanitarian sector, mm -hmm. having been one of those uh, folks who went in into a conflict zone and lived it, left my family, uh, took on really remarkable leadership roles that have their own exposure to burnout mm -hmm. and all kinds of other difficulties. I would say um, once I remembered uh, there was not, you know, that there are people who dealt with it without any shame but also who offered experiences of what it's like to be a leader who goes mm -hmm. through burnout. Mm -hmm. um, and then what it's like first to embody the changes and meaning like you have to sit within your lived experience and, and get some, some research done about what, why is it so hard for me to walk to my desk and open and read emails and take in, you know, documents and written word, what about that, that I've done so well, seems so impossible. So I remember, um, you know, from a professional side, folks like you saying, here are the warning signs. Here are the red flags. Don't beat yourself up. Recognize there's been ample research done about the first signs of burnout. And then that long road, but a beautiful struggle towards recovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, uh, it went from having someone else say, it's okay, this happens. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of what you did and, and what your work did for me, Melissa. Mm -hmm. And I continued that path and I shared my nice. story with everyone. But I also took the necessary time and then it offered me conversations when I was the person going through it with my, you know, uh, senior managers to say, what, where can you help me? Where does the institution support this is a very common problem. Mm -hmm. And once I um, once I went through my journey, mm -hmm. then I, I know I became a better leader. Immediately. Mm. I know. I know 2019, Nasra, who was burnt out but unaware with the pandemic, had the time to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Who then saw what a correct response was from a CEO who recognizes it, who values you, who says, what, what can we do? We're here. And then I take the time and I recover and I bounce back and it's, you know, it's two to three years. And now I can do that for someone else on my team. And I can do that as a leader and say, if we believe the phrase, people are our best asset, well, then a large significant number of our people are burnt out. And so how do you help them on that journey? What is the leadership anchor and pillar that you have to provide so I would say stick, hang in there. You're not alone. There's a lot of us who've gone through it. There's many people I would imagine with more crisis around the world who are going to go through it, unfortunately, but there is a way out and it takes years of investing back in who you are and you're building back your health system. And then, um, you know, hopefully we all get better by it because of the community we have around it. Absolutely. I feel like people need to know this is very common and it's 
I don't, it's not cursing when I say it, it sucks. Yeah, it's really hard. It's hard. But I think you and I both ended up in a better place because at least for me, it forced me to stop. Um, some people talk about the daily work as static or noise or just mm. the constant meetings, the constant Zoom, the constant reports, the constant, you know, visiting with people and bit uh, and when you are forced to stop and think about what's going on, it gives you a chance to say, am I in alignment with my assignment? Mm -hmm. oh, that's a great way to say it. <laughs> am I doing what I wanted, what I came here to do in the in humanitarian sector is we're relieving suffering. Yeah. But in social justice or in human rights or in the environmental climate change sector, so are we actually doing what we want to do? And sometimes we can get lost in the day to day and mm -hmm. it, and then our body in a way forces us to stop. And maybe, say, maybe our, what we're so uniquely suited to provide is not, we're not in the right place for that. Yeah. yeah. And I think some people kind of, at least I got stuck and didn't think I could do anything different. I thought that was just how it is. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but someone said, you don't have to stay where you are. And I know that's very privileged that I could change. Um, but it, what didn't even occur to me um, that I could. So, so when I did stop and reflect and say, actually, I'm not really in a job that's meeting my, that I can bring to bear my, my special skills. Yeah. And I'm yeah. not really making the impact that I was hoping. Um, maybe I should start looking for something different. I wouldn't have even considered that if I wasn't forced to stop. I agree with you totally. Um, I've made, it sounds like you have as well, different decisions entirely when um, at the center of our work is not the work, but us. So for sure, once my health was compromised, I, I couldn't um, I couldn't imagine continuing. And honestly, even if it has nothing to do with privilege, it's just you have to take you have to preserve. And so that's a human urge to preserve. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 I would imagine um, that being well, not being sick, not being able to do everyday, you know, basic functions, mm -hmm. that is a wake up call. And I think for the humanitarian sector, it's kind of a, um, it must have been early, in the early days bizarre to both be on this grand mission of wanting to be there for other people, reduce their suffering, mm -hmm. uh, find a sense of heroism in what we do. But at what cost was some of the questions I started to ask. And, um, you know, I... The, those two, two, two and a half years of um, recovering from burnout mm -hmm. made me 100% a better leader and a better person and a much more balanced humanitarian because it's no good to anyone if you are reducing potential suffering for others, but then mm -hmm. also incurring uh, at a large cost your own suffering. So I think that's unethical, actually. Mm -hmm. we, we shouldn't celebrate that kind of heroism because mm -hmm. it just you know destroys the basic um, premise of what we do and the fact that wellness has to be at the center of it all. Uh, my my burnout um, mm -hmm. was also 
had a lot to do with the kind of work around, mm -hmm. you know, advocacy as a mm -hmm. person who was pushing for social justice change mm -hmm. within the humanitarian sector in Somalia. And the reason why I bring that is because I think it was just equal, equal amounts of living uh, in a context where it was quite, security was fragile, mm -hmm. but also the demands of, for someone like me to be in mm. constant communication, in constant struggle, mm. in, const in constant confrontation with power. Oh, yeah. So that was, you know, that was a lesson beyond mm. burnout, but it was about how much of my burnout was me just being the only one, just sort of asking for a future, demanding a kind of future that not many people shared, which was based on equity, which was based mm -hmm. on, you know, a dignity for all actors and not just you know, the ones who do have the most resources and mm -hmm. have come into having the most resources. And so, you know, I, I share a lot of my burnout story with those who look like me and who have been kind of uh, a lonely voice in, in, in a room full of uh, people who may not share our lived experience. And so there's all that entangled in, in all of this. So I hope if someone is also like, well, I'm not living in a fragile context. Conflict is not necessarily something that's mm -hmm. in my environment, but I do feel like the only one. I do feel like I'm pushing Mm -hmm. you know, a particular um, perspective that's not shared by all. I do feel like I'm fighting for equity mm -hmm. and, and, and I don't feel like there are many people who are fighting with me. That can drain you. Yeah, That can drain you. Absolutely. You need yeah. your people. You need people with you. You need people in solidarity um, because it's, tire it's tiring work and, the, and our bodies actually absorb yeah. the stress in different ways. And if it's not, if it's not shared with other people, if you don't have community, it's less likely to sustain. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I've i always been lucky um, to have kind of, you know, found community where I could. But I think, I again, I make different decisions about different parts of where I put my advocacy and my energy and my thought mm -hmm. and where I'm willing to struggle. But ultimately, um, it all has boundaries now. And I'm very happy about it. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Can you come and teach boundary setting? Because that seems to yeah. be an issue. <laughs> it seems to be everywhere, huh? Boundaries. It keeps coming back. Um, yeah. It's, oh it's come up in about five of my conversations. <laughs> and I bet you uh, it's it crosses personal, professional. You know, it doesn't sit in just the personal. No, it's 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 everywhere. Um yeah, someone, one of my friends who, she's my accountability buddy. It's someone I talk to every Friday. Okay, good for you. So she, she's not from this world. And she said, sometimes your people have trouble setting boundaries, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> she, she's doing that accountability role. Yeah, really she's well. like, starts here, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, one of the things we wanted to talk about today was the idea of transition. Yeah. Um. Our sector is going through so much and transition is kind of baked into the experience because like you have traveled and been in different um, contexts and settings uh, and there's been a lot going on. Do you want to say something more about where you see the idea of transition and our transformation? Yeah, I, um, you know, like you, we're, we're kind of an uh, 
policy and analysis or sectoral, we have such a deep desire to study the sector and to see, you know, how it's doing and which part is maybe not catching up with the other. But I do think um, I remember transformation just being one of these often pronounced words uh, every strategy discussion, every impact conversation, we must transform to transform the lives of so many people, transform our sector, transform this part of our sector. So I just, I think I was, I came from a, a place where, I mean, you, you heard that T word every corner, <laughs> every corner of every place I've ever been when I was working uh, with the U.S. government, when I was working in uh, Kenya and Somalia, like it's just everywhere. It was this very, you know, it was ubiquitous. Um, transitions, I didn't hear much about. Mm. And transitions was something I had, I thought, uh, because both of them require a certain level of comfort mm -hmm. and maybe even desire for change. Mm -hmm. And so I thought um, transition is a bit more tangible. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could, you could see, you know, a program transition, people transition from job to job, sector to sector. Mm -hmm. I transitioned, as you said, from many different roles and many different places. But how healthy is it to transition? Um, I find myself thinking about whether within localization, mm -hmm. everyone has had a fair um, opportunity to transition. Mm -hmm usually from something to something. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's one of the areas where I'm often asking a lot of colleagues who've worked mainly inter in the international NGO mm -hmm. space. I've worked in the international NGO space mm -hmm. and I find it easier to converse with them at a deeper level when I can bring the discussion towards transition. Mm. Like, well, you know, I know I've transitioned from this continent to this continent, this world mm -hmm. to the other, but where have you transitioned and it's, it's, it, you just, you hear, and this is what I heard from a colleague the mm -hmm. other day. Uh, well, I feel like I'm just going from place to place, but in the same role, in the same type of, you know, INGO. <sighs> and so, you know, it's, it just offers a deeper conversation to say, mm -hmm. okay, well, have you had many transitions? Have you uh, worked for a local NGO? Mm -hmm. Have you worked in, in a coalition? And so I found people almost surprised that actually it's kind of been, monotonous and same same <laughs> same same um, whereas when I've talked to uh, you know other folks we're constantly transitioning yeah we're constantly coming into and living in a dynamic uh, sense living yeah. with all the strategies that have all been tried and so I, I am very different Melissa when mm -hmm. I was a young budding bureaucrat diplomat in DC uh -huh. I uh, was a contractor working for a private, you know, outfit uh -huh. when I was uh, an intern. Like, oh. I've transitioned, and I find that people with very similar life experiences mm -hmm. have transitioned and can speak quite eloquently mm -hmm. and truthfully about so many parts of society that we have been a part of. Yeah. But some of my other colleagues uh, may not because, actually, they've not transitioned well or they haven't offered themselves this change that is manageable, which is when have you been a leader, but also mm -hmm. when have you been a follower? Mm -hmm. When have you had more power, but also when have you been mm -hmm. in positions with less power? So um, I just found the conversations much more, I mean, they were varied, but they were, I was also really surprised because I was like, mm -hmm. this is the part that I'm interested in now. I'm not really mm -hmm. interested in seven, 10, 20 year mm -hmm. transformations. Mm -hmm. 
I want to plan towards them. But mm-hmm. transitions at an individual professional level really yeah. helped me understand power and really helped me understand why there was, to some extent, so much misunderstandings early on about localization. Yes. And now, some pushback, you know? You're getting pushback. Oh, there's been significant pushback on localization and yeah. diversity and equity mm-hmm. and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of them uh, mm-hmm. well and good because that's the... That's that's a system. That's a system that's in struggling. That's a system that's trying to embody uh, yeah. change. But I think it's just worthwhile uh, sometimes to speak at a transition level. And I'm, I, I think, I, I, it makes me have a deeper appreciation of all the places that I've transitioned to and from. Mm-hmm. And I realize that's rare. That's and really rare. I think you are one of the few people I've talked to who's actually seen, because you've been in different roles with different levels of. Power I've been going in and out, horizontal, vertical, all around. How is that for you? And I could tell my story too, but I'm. I, I'd love to. Yeah. You want to hear my little brief story? I, yeah. I, I used to work for a donor for 10 years. I love that. <laughs> and then when it came time to rotate for family reasons, we decided to stay where we were. So I went over to the NGO side. Okay. And then the same people that used to laugh at my jokes, take me to lunch, call me, the same people, not all, Mm -hmm. but some of these same people, as soon as I switched from a donor to a partner role, the treatment just was like a light switch turning off. Absolutely. Don't return my calls. Don't return my calls. Don't care if I managed to get their time. One of them said, how dare you? Because I was bringing up an issue and NGOs NGOs were having some issues in one of the operations. Like, how dare you talk about this? I was like, we used to be friends. We used to hang out. But I thought that was what it was, but it wasn't. (laughs) But for me, that transition from a role of donor to a role of partner hit me in the gut. Because these were people that used to treat me in a very different way now treating me another way. Right. And so for that, it was a very personal experience of power, a power status reversal. Yeah. I lost power immediately from one day to the next. But at the same time, I felt more power because we as the NGOs could be speaking out in our statements about things that weren't going well. Um, I felt in one way, a decline in power, but in another way, more freedom to speak. So it was really kind of a reframe for me. And I, and I was like, maybe we don't have as much money, but we can organize. That's right. That's right. Yeah. How is it I for mean, you? That's such, a beautiful, that's such a beautiful reflection. And that's rare, by the way, Melissa, because uh, usually, isn't it usually the other way around? You You want to, and you work towards ending up towards the donor. And you and I both started as a donor. My first job, eight year, almost eight years with the U.S. government as a bilateral donor with all the fixings, you know? So, so, so I remember actually when people ask me the question, where in your 20-year you know, work, which chapter was the most thrilling and remarkable? It's the one where I had the least power. But I had community. And I had an ability to exist outside a very bureaucratic system, which serves a purpose. Right. But the, in the coalition of NGOs is when I found a way more thrilling opportunity to not only 
aspire for a, a change, but um, to just see when 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 you're fighting for something, all of a sudden what you gain when you don't have power. Like, what do you gain when you don't have power? So I think that kind of experience, that lived experience, whoo, it's it's a little bit of a drug. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that's pretty amazing about what you said is um, the treatment. Um, I can, you know, many, many, many uh, women have been also kept out of certain parts of the professional system, whether it's through fully, fully get, realizing their role, their leadership, their presence, but also their equity around salary and parity. Yeah. Um, I mean, they they went through a particular journey, and that journey still is ongoing. But um, mm -hmm. there is a response to a treatment, and then you know, for local NGOs, they've found themselves finding community, mm -hmm. twenty fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, and look mm -hmm. what they could do, knowing that the data was clear. They are not getting anywhere near what they need in terms of resources, decision-making, shared mm. strategy, shared vision. So I think every group can have a particular story around how were they treated, by mm -hmm. whom, mm -hmm. and then what was the cost of that treatment. And so um, I, just, I just hope that people have those kinds of different lenses mm -hmm. in their lifetime and in their professional lifetime because it makes you and I'm sure you feel this way, mm -hmm. it just makes you much more uh, understanding of the world. You have all the perspectives and context that someone else would, 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 would either have to live another lifetime mm -hmm. and expose themselves to the world and how mm -hmm. it treats certain people. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm so glad of the many transitions I've made. Mm -hmm. And then to speak truthfully about those treatments in those particular roles and still say, we got to keep going. Like the world is, is, is too big for us not to change, not to continue to be improved and to say, mm -hmm. yeah, everyone has a lived experience, but it is harder, I think, Melissa, for those in our community who's, who's, who've only known one transition. It's exactly. hard for somebody who's only been in one INGO of yeah. a particular size to even begin to understand or let mm -hmm. alone empathize why are the locals feeling this way? Why is somebody who is coming into a role that is not necessarily um, has been historically representative? Mm -hmm. Why are they leading this way? Why are they showing up this way? It is difficult for those who have only known one world. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I'm I'm glad we have sort of the same beginnings, and it feels like mm -hmm. some of the same appreciations about. It's, it's good to see the world from many, many angles and then to document its treatment. Absolutely. Can we dive deeper on localization? I'm, sure. I'm asking because we started with the, the original T were transformative. I, I used to talk about the transformative agenda. I said, I wish I could have a <laughs> rock band and we call it the transformative <laughs> agenda. <laughs> and I would love, I love the idea of transformative agenda it sounds so yeah. good yeah yeah but does. when but then when <laughs> when I'm like how would I apply that in my own daily work yeah and so I said in this new chapter my new season I want to create a local group of women mm -hmm. that live in my neighborhood yeah and we support each other peer support 
I love that. Mutual aid society. That's right. If, if we can't make it work in Geneva, where can we make it work? Because it's a relatively <laughs> right. safe place to play. Yeah, yeah. And you live there. And so, you know, that is local to you. So it's I love local that. It's to very me, although, proximate. Although yeah. it's very hard to find people who are actually born here in this oh, neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's another story. But I said, let's let's apply this localization idea in our own life today, yeah. where we live. Mm-hmm. I love that. Can we support each other and collaborate with each other? And so that's starting. And it is such a learning experience to try to apply things that you talk about in the world and say, okay, what does it look like if I apply it in my own life? Mm. What are you thinking about localization now? Uh, I promise you, we did not practice this, but like <laughs> I have decided to live out localization. Oh, say more. I, you know, because I think my journey with localization uh, is starts in 2015, 16, when, you know, as a uh, young, young Somali person, I was just desiring to go back home to that, you know, uh, original home. Uh, but I'm no longer a child. And so this is now a professional journey. And I remember how just sensible the localization agenda was. Mm -hmm. You have a group of people um, who are amongst the community that is either, um, you know, we're all caring about as humanitarians or we are serving mm -hmm. or who are our clients or who are our partners, whatever you call them, we have um, a group of local uh, community leaders who have institutions, who have non-governmental organizations, and um, who basically have one of or all of five goals to participate wholly and fully mm -hmm. in the agenda of how their communities are treated, how mm -hmm. they are supported, how they are partnered with, and how they are included in, in, in agenda settings who also want to labor along the side of other big stakeholders, donors, government, mm -hmm. UN NGOs, international service deliverers, organizations, mm -hmm. and who say, we want to work alongside you, feeling dignified in our roles, mm -hmm. dignified in our ability to resource, um, just like you are. Mm -hmm. And third, who have a desire to be treated like equals mm -hmm. and to be invited to the areas where decision-making and discussions are occurring, convenings mm -hmm. are being curated. And finally, who, and this is not always how the policy sounds, but I'm putting them into my own words because these mm -hmm. desires are so human um, and who ultimately just want to joyfully smile um, and, and take so much uh, pride in mm -hmm. being the heroes of their community. Yes. Like localization can be so bureaucratic, but ultimately yeah. it's somebody who is amongst like you in your community, in yeah. your neighborhood, who wants to be participatory, who wants to be seen, who wants to be heard, who when people are laboring and partnering mm -hmm. and contracting, want to be treated as an equal fair partner, want yeah. to be resourced, and ultimately who want to say, my gosh, like I want to be helpful and I want to be the hero of my community. And so that I, I I found myself saying, how is this looked upon in as anything other than a beautiful contribution 
and a beautiful desire to be treated um well and then you know i got into the system and melissa it was it was horrifying it was horrifying because i i just yeah forget all those desires it was a last thought many local actors were kind of a lost thought and uh -huh. many of the you know meeting agendas meeting halls meeting you know convenings you know nobody really thought well did we invite them? Did we include them? Will they also take part in this implementation? So I think that kind of um, seeing how close and how normal those asks were from the local uh -huh. actors and then seeing the system that did everything almost entirely to eclipse that, that's quite shocking to me. So I just remember that that was my beginning. And then, you know, we took on, I took mm -hmm. on a couple of different roles uh -huh. and then began the fight of saying, what can I do? to elevate these desires, to right. make space for these desires, together with strategy to then embed these desires more holistically in the system. And, you know, we made a lot of grounds, but uh -huh. um, six years later, for me, it's no longer just a professional practice. It is a personal practice. So I moved back here into the U.S., uh -huh. where... Naturally, I thought if I'm going to apply all the localization principles of being proximate, yes, of being uh, taking issues that are around me that I can do something about that I also feel. Mm -hmm. It's why I joined um, the place that I work at now, Allied, and it's why I'm working on things that have so much to do with who I am, which is around supporting uh, this great nation be the best welcomer uh -huh. to refugees and to help resettle and to make space in our literally communities for others who find themselves fleeing all the horrible things that uh, refugees and displaced people go through. So I've localized my profession. I've localized myself, grounded myself in a community uh -huh. here. The issues I deal with are domestic by nature because I'm here. So uh -huh. I'm not traveling uh as far out of the U.S. as I used to, uh -huh. I'm much more concerned about, you know, um, who's who's going for uh, which school district, who uh -huh. is, you know, issues that are local. And I feel empowered and I feel, <gasps> you know, what I've always thought should be what everyone should feel. Yes. But I feel like, you know, localization for me has now become kind of this intersection of personal uh, and professional work. But now it's a practice. Oh, so you're in alignment with your assignment. Hey, hey, if that's I love this. I have to write this down. <laughs> but but that but the, of all the transitions now, now I can say, you know, we can limit localization to all the things that are scary about change or we can really deepen this and say when it's done well, it's what everybody deserves. It's what everybody wants. And uh, I'm I'm glad to be visible in my community. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to be well resourced. I'm glad to be uh, voiced and empowered. I'm yes. glad to be seen as you know somebody. Uh, so uh, hallelujah, hallelujah. You know that's a good. I hate to bring it back to burnout. That's my favorite topic. No, both. <laughs> but one of the risk factors for burnout is if you feel a misalignment with the values and you don't feel connected to your purpose or your cause. So yeah. it's like um, a lot of people in a headquarters role feel guilty that they're burning out because they say, if I was a, in a, an, mm. in a, an operation, um, I, sh I would be worse off, but actually people in operations often feel more resource because they're directly in contact with the people they're That's there right. to serve. 
Like, who are we serving? Oh, they're right here. I'm living with them. I'm here. (laughs) And now you're, you're living with the people that are your people uh, that, that are where you, so not that you weren't before, but you just feel part of this bigger thing that's bigger than you, but it's also something where you see your impact even better. So it sounds like you've really ended up in a good place, Nasra. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. I feel it. I feel it. I, again, you know, how much of this is, um, how much of this would I have charted without this need to pause, this need to really use the, it sounds God awful, but like the pandemic period when we're all isolated to rethink, recover and say, okay, I can still be in in purpose, but what does it mean when I'm here domestically? What does it mean when I can bring the values of uh, the principles and values of localization about being proximate? Like, what does that feel like when it's not just here, the cognitive idea, but it's lived? It's lived. It's It's like then then you have it, you know, you have a really closer relationship with your donors and and we have everyday donors here at Alight. We have, you know, everyday Uh, community members that we're going, who we are working with who sponsor families who are coming into America. And so I just think um, the little transitions helped to live out the big principles of localizations, but they're founded upon a deep lived experience. Absolutely, Nasra. That is such a great way to close our conversation. And I just wanted to say uh, for this project that I'm working on with women supporting women, a lot of women have come to me and said, I can't come to this group because I want out. I want to leave my job. Mm. I can't be here anymore, but they're kind of feeling trapped. So I think it's helpful to hear from people like you who've gone through transitions and done a career pivot, um, that it's possible and you can end up in a place that's really aligned to where you are in this season of life. So there is hope out there for people who, who feel a bit stuck, but there you can change. It's it, you. It's an imperative to change, but you know, it's possible. It's possible to really be um, transformed, uh, and it's possible to um, grow through that change and thrive through that change. Um, so I, yeah, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to always come back to you. I think one of the other things, and maybe this is something that's just for everyone to think about, uh-huh. the less and less I really do center my lived experience, the less and less I end up putting a lot of effort talking about my quote-unquote professional life. Mm-hmm. Like it really becomes quite helpful to center mm-hmm. just my life. And so I hope for everybody who is uh, going through that uh, journey, mm-hmm. get comfortable when it becomes less and less about the resume. Oh, nice. It's fine. Yeah, it's going to be great. You you have a, a life resume now. Absolutely. So Nasra, for people who want to learn more about you, do you have any suggestions for what they should do? Should they go onto your LinkedIn profile or what, what, what should they do? I might be the only one uh, still <laughs> remaining on Twitter and X. So <laughs> you can find me on there as Nas, N-A-S underscore isms, I-S-M-S. I'm also really active on LinkedIn, Nasra Smile. Uh, you'll find, obviously, my professional world there. I'm the U.S. Executive Director for Alight. Find me there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much uh, available on the digital platforms. But thank you all. I am more than happy to speak to anyone to share uh, anything that I can to help improve. I've been on the recipient side of so much <laughs> support, particularly from women leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, that that 
kind of lived experience commonality has helped me a lot. So I also just want to say thank you, Melissa. You've been that for uh, so many you. of us and for me. And uh, I can't wait for the next time we talk. I don't know what transitions I would have made by then. <laughs> I can't wait. Thank you so <laughs> much, Nazar. It. It's been a joy, as with last time. I love connecting with you. Thank you for your generosity of time and sharing your experience. I think it will help and resonate with a lot of people who are in transition or want to be. Yeah. So I wish you all Thank the best. You. And I look forward to our next catch-up call. Sounds great. Thanks, Melissa. There you have it, friends. My conversation with Nasra Ismail. Thank you so much, Nasra, for your time and your positivity. I really needed that. Um, I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for getting all the way to the end. And our editor, Ziada Abayid, for always getting back to me so quickly with all the episodes. We need help editing them. Now, my call to action to you going forward from this episode. Take care and be compassionate with yourself.